Alright guys, we're going to go ahead and get started. Michael said, just go. And uh, everybody trickle in. So, glad y'all are here. Um, y'all are the three-year plus crew, exactly, right? Uh, it's good to be here. I'm Robert Rowe. I live in Chattanooga. And was in youth ministry for about 17 years uh, with two different churches. And then uh, recently, last year, joined a ministry uh, called See Jesus that Paul Miller started about 20 years ago. Paul Miller's a Christian author, a, a great thinker. Um, he has written several books and started a mission organization after he worked for World Harvest, which is now Surge, kind of came out of that and started his own mission organization called See Jesus. So it's a mission organization that's a global discipling mission. Uh, and I came on staff um, about a year ago to, do, to be the student ministry coordinator for See Jesus, which means uh, I get to work with youth pastors and partner with a uh, great place like RYM and do uh, trainings and seminars and all kinds of fun stuff with youth pastors. Uh, and I'm, I'm really uh, the time slot, right? Right after lunch, right after you sat through uh, a lot of morning stuff. Uh, but I really hope that for the next uh, little while that we're together, that perhaps you'll start thinking about some things uh, in the way that you haven't thought about them before. I am uh, probably uh, more excited to be in ministry uh, as a 48-year-old than I ever have been in my life. And it's not because I'm not working in the church directly, uh, but it's because I've actually... Um, for the first time in a long time in my life, I have actually fallen in love with Jesus. And I know that sounds weird. Like, man, you've been an ordained pastor, you've been in church ministry. What do you mean you've just now fallen in love with Jesus? And uh, so I want to explain a little bit of my story for you, spend just a few minutes of that because it sets the context. So where we're going today, I want to spend about 15 minutes telling you that journey. And then I want to spend about 15 minutes kind of going over a, a little bit of a theological understanding uh, that will explain a little bit about see Jesus, but it will explain theologically that we actually uh, have created a hole in our theology uh, and talk about that. And then, the, then we'll take a break, and we'll come back, and we're going to do a Bible study together uh, that I'm going to lead us through. Uh, so that's kind of the plan of where we're going. So let me, uh, let me first of all tell you that uh, my story. So about five years ago, I was, uh, I was working in a, a large PCA church in Chattanooga, First Presbyterian Church. Uh, had gotten to a place in my life where I was uh, really, really spiritually dry and really, really struggling. Uh, even at home, uh, I was 
uh, very short with my kids, uh, short with my wife. I was, I was angry all the time, uh, dealing with a lot of struggles in my church uh, that was kind of being carried over to my kids, dealing with a lot of uh, internal stuff uh, that y'all talked about last time, uh, some narrow pathways that probably aren't connected in my head that need to be. Um, so, so really, I got, I got to a place where I was going week after week, and I say a lot of this with great caution because I don't want you to misunderstand me. But I was going week after week hearing uh, gospel preaching, but the message that was being that, I, that my heart was hearing is that you do life as a as a Christian by following principles and following truths and remembering this great exchange of what we love to hang our foundation on, the justification by faith. And that was the brunt of what I kept hearing over and over. And in circles, a lot of times, uh, I remember having this conversation with Joey Stewart and some other guys that, you know, we kind of as teachers go into justification department. Like, you don't know really where this passage is going, you don't know really where you're going, but if, man, if you just hit justification by faith, you nail it. And, uh, and that's, kind of, that's our tradition, right? We're really good at that. But I found that that message for me, I had kind of just to share some things with you, I had I had kind of this depth of theological training, uh, understanding of the scriptures, of all the historic creeds, this battle over who is this person, Jesus, uh, that went on for, for centuries in the church. And I really grappled with it. I uh, grappled with the Council of Chalcedon, which is probably the greatest Christian creed outside of Philippians 2 on the person of Christ. But I began to wrestle with this like question of what I was hearing is Jesus is kind of superhero. He's God-man. Uh, and then sometimes we erred on the side of, no, He's God-man, uh, instead of kind of the proper emphasis of God-man. And um, so as I started to read through the Scriptures, I started to wrestle with some passages you know, all these familiar passages that we wrestle with. Um, came to Philippians 2. I went to, went to hear, um, it was actually a, a Christmas Eve sermon, I believe, and uh, the pastor was pre- preaching from Philippians 2. I was like, oh man, one of my favorite passages. And uh, just, just so, um, where do you think the, pa- the pastor spent 99% of his time on Philippians 2? Do what? Humility. Humility. Actually, he's spinning on this kind of this red section because it's very theological. Who, though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Right? He really spent the God of his time unpacking theologically what that meant. 
and then got to a couple of sections um, where he literally just said, uh, I, know that, I know that part of this is lit teaching and leading towards imitation of Christ, but we really can't do that. I mean, he's, he's God. And so he went back into kind of unpacking the theological part. And I thought, man, there's... Why is it that we're so scared to talk about imitation? Why is it that we're so scared to talk about this person named Jesus in those ways? And so I really began to wrestle with all those passages. And then somebody invited me to a, a, a discipleship seminar. And I'm being very honest with y'all. I was, I was actually at this point, I, I got a master's degree in fisheries biology. I was ready to leave ministry. I was ready to, to go. I was actually called a friend of mine who owns an environmental consulting business in Decatur and said, hey man, I'm, I'm really ready to do something different. You got any, anything open? He said, yeah, I've got some stuff that you could start doing. And, uh, and my friend invited me to this conference. I thought, this is going to be the same stuff I've heard for 20 years. Um, we're going to do the Great Commission and talk about that and how we're failing at discipleship and we'll try to figure it out again. We'll have a roundtable discussion about how to be disciples of Jesus and how do you do discipleship in youth ministry and all that stuff. And I was like, I don't really want to go to this. Uh, but I went and after being 20 years in the church and a believer since I was 13, probably 16, 17 again. Um, this guy named Dan Sater uh, started talking about Jesus in ways that i never, ever heard in my entire Christian life. And he started talking about Jesus who studied the Scriptures. Jesus who spent time in prayer. Jesus who uh, was the fullness of humanity. Uh, this Jesus who uh, we as fallen humanity have perhaps never experienced what it means to be fully human. And so he, he started just talking about what does it look like to walk as Jesus walked. I thought, whoa, wait a second. You're talking about imitation here. Like, I don't talk about that in my circles. We don't talk much about what does it look like to imitate Christ because we're really scared of the implications of legalism and moralism and all the dangers that that can go to legitimately concerned. And so I walked out of that, no pun intended, that one day discipleship meeting and I thought, I am called, Peter says, to walk as Jesus walked. And I thought to myself, I have no idea how Jesus walked. I knew a lot of his teaching. I knew a lot of what he said. I knew a lot of what he did, his miracles. But I had no idea how Jesus lived life. And so I, the Holy Spirit lit something in my heart that day. And I began to just consume the Gospels find everything I could on this person named Jesus. And honestly, 
uh, it was really hard to find stuff. Uh, there is uh, entire, this entire building could literally be filled with books that have been written on the work of Christ. And rightfully said, right, that's the hallmark of the Reformation. But I probably couldn't stack this table to the ceiling with the number of books that have been written on the person of Jesus. It's just a hole in our theology. And so I started really wrestling with it, went to another conference uh, where a guy at Perimeter named Monty Starks got up and spoke, and he started, and I've been on like this two-year, really being honest with you, two-year, really silent internal journey because I was scared to death to go back and say something to a, another pastor in my presbytery that I thought we were missing something. And I was nervous. And so I went to this, another discipleship conference, uh, Perimeter did, on their, um, what's their journey? Is that the name of it? Anyway, it's good stuff. Uh, and Monty Starks got up and started talking about the person of Jesus, and I thought, i got to talk to that guy. Like, nobody speaks this language. And so I went out and grabbed Monty afterwards, and uh, Monty said, oh yeah, man, you, you're... Uh, you're on this journey that I've been on, like you need to go look at uh, Paul Miller's stuff on the person of Jesus. And I was like, I hardly even know Paul Miller. All I know about Paul Miller is the praying line. And I didn't even know he did anything on the person of Jesus. So I emailed Paul Miller. Uh, Paul Miller called me on the phone. Uh, two days later, we had an hour-long conversation. He just said, hey, tell me about your journey. I love to hear about people who are investigating and falling in love with Jesus. And so that started this journey for me where I had uh, these, you know, these three responses to that following thing. Uh, just to, to hit on that a little bit, these were my, my three responses. I can't imitate Jesus. He's Jesus. My other response was, uh, it's all about union with Christ, not about imitation. That's the emphasis I'd always heard. And the other one is, remember the gospel cycle. And I heard that gospel cycle in Atlanta at that discipleship conference. And I thought, man, there's more to this gospel cycle. Uh, because here's what, here's what I believe the gospel cycle does. Of believe, sin, repent, confess, repent, and believe. And you go, you go around the cycle over and over, right? You need to see more of your sin. You need to confess that sin. And you need to believe the gospel. Right? The mantra for me over and over was preach the gospel to yourself every day. We've all probably heard that. And I, maybe it's just me. I woke up in the mornings going, okay, I'm a sinner. God's grace has been given to me. I'm His adopted Son. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. His Holy Spirit is indwelling me. Got it? Okay, let's go with the day. I remembered the Gospel. Okay, I'm not bad-mouthing that. Please don't hear me saying that. We do need that. But I think what happened in my life was 
That as I began to do the gospel cycle, see more of my sin, confess, repent, believe, see more of my sin, confess, repent, believe, I turned inward, and all I saw was just constant yuck. There is a good aspect of that. But what it did for me is it never gave me a trajectory of where I'm heading. Is it perpetually that? My framework was that I had all this, but I felt lifeless. I felt like a skeleton with all this theological goodness. So if you take this gospel that we love, and you put the person of Jesus at the center of it, what begins to happen? You know, if you start, if you start thinking about what does it look like for the person of Jesus to be at the center of this gospel cycle, then I realize what happens is that passages like 1 Corinthians 13 on love, Paul wasn't writing in a theological vacuum under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he was writing in the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't just this theological vacuum. We believe in organic inspiration. The greatest source of organic inspiration, when we talk about it theologically, is their background, their upbringing, their education, their culture. Right? And the Holy Spirit used all of that to inspire the Scriptures. I wholeheartedly, 100% agree with that. But the one key piece that we're missing in organic inspiration is their encounter with the most magnificent person to ever live. And so when Paul, who encounters the resurrected Jesus and experiences who he is, starts to write about love in 1 Corinthians 13, who does he have on his mind? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Like overnight, like he's got the person of Jesus on his mind. And you think about Galatians 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He's, t- he's talking about Jesus. And you think about his, his brother James. He's talking about wisdom. In chapter 3 of James, who does James have on his mind? I mean, this is the brother the half-brother of Jesus. When James starts describing wisdom from above, he's talking about this magnificent God-man that he watched do wisdom. And he starts falling in love with him. So, we start learning what love looks like in this gospel cycle, but where is the gospel cycle heading to? Where is it going? And this is the piece, one of the pieces that I think we often miss, that the gospel cycle, I want to teach students the gospel cycle. I want to teach them, confess, see your sin, confess your sin, repent, and believe the gospel. But give them the trajectory that it's heading to. What is the Holy Spirit doing in that gospel cycle? The Holy Spirit's job is to propel us and to mold and to prune and to shape us to look like Jesus, to bear the image of Jesus. That is a hopeful trajectory in the midst of all this inward looking, isn't it? That's where we're going. That's the point of the gospel cycle, 
is that you and I would begin to take on the shape and the form of Jesus Christ and look like Him. So that's where we're headed in that. You know, you got all these statistics about Generation Z. I'm not going to go through these. You all know them. Um, but it started to dawn on me, why is it that the church is in trouble? Why is... Uh, what impact, I think the book Growing Young is one of the only books written currently that's asking, the, that's kind of asking the question of the church to look inward. Um, the church's greatest concern has really become the, the next generation. Why is it that, that we're trying to answer the question, right? I've been, I've been trying to have conversations with... Um, Impact 360 and, and Barna, because they're doing all these studies and trying to figure out. Um, I wish they would just ask this question of the church, like, what have you been teaching the younger generation that maybe you're missing that's causing them to leave the church in the end? And uh, there's a lot of factors in this, right? I'm not saying there's a magic bullet here. But part of what uh, we at See Jesus, um, part of our thought process is that we uh, are kind of theologically like a donut. Uh, that we've got a hole in our theology. So this conversation started when uh, Paul Miller had a, a lunch with uh, Richard Gaffin, I believe, and. He mentioned it to me. There's a there's a hole in our theology books. We there's a hole in our theology that we talk about a lot about the work of Christ, but we've missed the person. And so he started to grapple with that. And Gaffin said, "You know, you're right. We have we have missed something in our upbringing that we've rightfully so emphasized what Christ has done and the work that He's accomplished." Rightfully so. Please hear me say that. It is a proper emphasis. But when we miss the person, then we're missing a massive part. And you might be asking, like, what do you mean by this person of Jesus? And we're going to do a study on that, so we'll see what that means. And you might be asking, um, man, well, what is? what do you mean by missing the work of Christ? What's... Are missing the person of Christ, and this is this is kind of what I think it looks like. This is this is kind of a picture of the church. Um, some of you might know the context in which this comes from. Just keep that to yourself. Um, but this picture is uh, is really what I think a good idea of what the church looks like. If the, if the muscular built-up side is, I emphasize the work of Christ, uh, man, we've got it down. Rightfully so. Keep teaching and preaching justification by faith. It's great freedom. right? It is the gospel. But who's at the center of the gospel? A person named Jesus. Have we put the cart before the horse. And we keep preaching to kids, fall in love with this theological truth. You are justified, declared righteous, 
by Jesus Christ. It's not your own works. It's His. You are free. And we're inviting them over and over again. Fall in love with principle and truth. Are we really inviting them to fall in love with the person when we do that? I'm wondering if part of the reason that we are seeing the trend generationally is that we've missed the person of Jesus and we've given them principles and truths and when they go to a college campus, that principle and truth butts up against the entire world views that are out there, the millions of them, and they're going, it's just one principle and truth against another principle and truth. Instead of saying, hey, can I invite you in to see the beauty of this amazing person named Jesus? And once we give them the person of Jesus to fall in love with, guess what they fall in love with after that? His principles and truth. So it starts with the person, and then we give what the person teaches. So, and I'll give you, we're going we're gonna to learn what that looks like. So if we don't believe um, the work of the gospel, like I've said, it's vastly important. What happens if you don't believe in the work of the gospel? What do you lose? Yeah. What do you lose specifically? You, you lose faith. Right? Faith goes away if you take away the work of Christ. Right? So what if you, what if you don't know the person of the gospel? What do you lose? Jesus. Yeah. Daily, well, how does that work out? There's no intimacy. Yeah. Yeah, good. We, we lose love. We've lost what it means God is love. The greatest expression of His love is this magnificent person, His Son, Jesus. So if we take away the person, we've lost the understanding, the ability to love. Because we don't really know what love looks like because we based it on just a principle or a truth and not a person. So what if we take away, and uh, without going into all the, the pathway, this is kind of Paul's new work on the J-curve. If you haven't read it, I suggest, suggest you do. Um, but it's talking about entering into, based on Philippians 3, we enter into a life of suffering with Christ that we may also attain the resurrection from the dead. So we're called into the, the, that the, the pathway of the gospel is to mimic the very life of Christ, which is a death and a resurrection. And that we do that on a daily basis. And so what happens to your students when suffering comes into their world and they don't understand the pathway of the gospel? What happens when they suffer? In our modern kind of... Gen Z. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah, good. Like to numb out. Would you say they react well to suffering? I mean, none of us do. I'm not picking on Gen Z. Um, but perhaps it's because we haven't actually explained, like, hey, you know, the suffering that you're in, um, this is part of your union with Christ, and you, you get to, like, imitate Him and enter into His life. That life is called into a dying and rising in everyday life with Jesus. So, we, we, if, we, if we take away the pathway of Jesus and don't give them an understanding of that, then we lose hope. Uh, ultimately, there is no point to the suffering. There's no point to the struggle. It's just this God who kind of likes to watch people suffer. <laughs> and we believe He's sovereign and we teach them that God's sovereign and then stuff happens and they, they just don't have a category for it. But we give them the category of the life of Jesus, it starts making sense. So, um, there's several benefits to the study of the person of Jesus. We're going to talk about this as we do this lesson. Um, but Jesus is theology lived out. It's really, it's really a sense in which, if you think about, I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, you know when you get your phones? Uh, how many of you have iPhones in here? Probably the majority of us, right? And they give you a new I- iOS download, and you're like, "Man, I got that! I got an iPhone 6s, and if I download this, what's gonna? It's just gonna crash, right? It's, I'm not doing it." So you like live with the software update message on your phone. I've had mine on my phone for like two years. Right? Because I refuse in the modern world to make a stinking, take a stinking loan out and have a payment on a phone. Like, what is this? Crazy. Like, I can understand a house. So, think about Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, the second Adam. Why does he do that? He does that because he's because Jesus is humanity 2.0. He's the better humanity. He accomplished what Adam could not. He loved the way Adam did not, right? All these beautiful theological truths we understand. So why don't we ever tell our kids, if you want to know what it means to be human, watch the greatest human that's ever lived. We never say that. I never said that to my, to my kids that I ministered to for 17 years. I never told them, you want to know what life looks like. You want to know what you were intended to be as a human to bear the image of God, then watch Jesus. I never told them. So my passion now is that you, as youth pastors, would give your kids Jesus. He is the perfection of humanity. And it's as if God says, you want to know what it means to be human. You want to know what I intended for you. Then watch my son. Watch the way he does life. Don't just reduce Jesus to 72 hours. He lived an entire lifetime 
and showed us what love looks like. He showed us what compassion looks like. He showed us how to deal with emotion. He showed us how to, how to deal with anger. He showed us what friendship looks like. He showed us how to deal with temptation. He showed us how to, how to walk with the Father. He showed us life. He is the ultimate life giver. Let's give Jesus to the students we work with. He's, he is life. And so my, my deep conviction is that, you know, Jesus is theology lived out. He's love in action. The other thought is that Jesus gives us a theology of what it means to be human. How do we love? How do we do suffering? How do we do sadness? How do we do honesty? Right? The, the answer to cultural collapse. The world keeps looking for a better humanity. That's what your students are longing for. They're really deeply asking the question, what does it mean to be human? So, why not? Right, it's really simple. Let's just give them the perfect human. Let's give them the God-man. If we want to know what it means to be human. Um, Let's not be scared of the iOS download. (laughs) Right? Let's, Let's... it's, not, it's going to reshape things for sure. So I think that part of what Jesus does in his life, obviously, is that he's fulfilling the greatest commandment. He's, he's showing us what it means to love God and love neighbor. And so when we begin to study the person, we begin to actually love differently. I promise you that if I were to let you to come to my home and interview my children and say, what's different about your dad in the last five years previous, in the previous life with him? They would say, man, I, I think my dad has probably lost it in anger before this once a week he yelled at us and had a temper tantrum like he was a 13-year-old. <laughs> and they would say, man, in the last five years, I think my, you know, my dad's lost it maybe three times. And you know why? You know, you really want to know why that is? It's because actually... I started to study the person of Jesus and how he dealt with anger. I wasn't, I knew the principle, Father, don't provoke your children to anger. When you're angry with somebody in your heart, you've murdered them. Like I knew the truths and the principles. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is when we, that's fine to teach those truths and principles, but take it one step further and just go, Hey, this passage that says um, when you've had anger in your heart towards someone, you've heard of them, when Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, let's, let's also look and see an instance where Jesus was dealing with anger and how he dealt with it. Let's watch it lived out in the perfection of humanity, in humanity 2.0. Let's watch the second Adam be life. That's what I'm starting to get at when I'm talking about the person of Jesus. So, it is, 
a big part of what I want to do. So our, so our next, we're going to take a break for a minute, but I really want to come back and we're going to have a, a Bible study together on the person of Jesus, and it's super interactive because I believe, and at See Jesus, what the resources we develop, uh, we believe that they're for discovery, to help people discover the beauty of Jesus. Okay? So take a five-minute break, and then come back. So y'all come back in. We're going to do a little Bible study. Turn in, uh, or I'll tell you turn, where to turn in just a minute. But we'll go ahead and, go ahead and start. So this is... Uh, a study uh, that I have kind of robbed a lot from Paul Miller. Uh, But part of my job is to take uh, the genius of Paul Miller and his stuff, uh, the spirit, the person, and the pathway of Jesus, and transform it into youth ministry content. So it's kind of fun. I get to dissect Paul Miller's mind and... uh, try to translate it. So one example uh, is that his stuff on the person of Jesus is really great, uh, but some of the illustrations in there, it's got like 48 lessons on the person of Jesus. And Paul's often asked like, Paul, come on, like 48 lessons, couldn't you like condense that down? Uh, And I love Paul Miller's answer. Uh, you know what he says to the, his response to that question? Why so many lessons? He just said, it takes a long time to get to know a person. And I just thought, oh, okay. Um, I'm undone because I can spend the rest of my life getting to know the person Jesus. Right? Even sandwiched in that Philippians 3 passage, uh, Paul says, I... He has all this resume. I consider it all rubbish except for what? Knowing the Lord Jesus. And then he gets into this, like, the, the stuff we jump on, it wasn't uh, a righteousness on my own. We're like, oh yes, justification by faith, we get to go there. And then he bookends it with, I long to know Him and share in His sufferings that I might also attain the resurrection of the dead. Like, Justification is bookend by knowledge of Jesus. Uh, it's really beautiful. So, as we start to unpack um, who this person Jesus is, uh, let me let me start by asking you a question. So, if you are in a if you are sitting in a restaurant uh, and you overheard someone say this statement, "I can do nothing on my own. I only do." What I see my daddy doing. What would you? What advice would you give a person that said that? I'm not trapping you. You all know, like, but just play along. Grow up. Yeah, be independent. Got some codependency issues. Yeah. Anybody else? Do what? Like the imagination. Yeah. You only replicate what you see done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like think everything for yourself. Get outside the box. Yeah. How old would you think a person would be that said this? Three, four, five. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, child. Yeah, it's in- interesting, isn't it? That's uh, turn to John chapter five. Verse 19. And uh, somebody read that out loud for us. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing in His own accord, and only what He sees the Father do. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does. Okay, thanks, Justin. Read verse 30a as well. Same chapter. I can do nothing on my own. Okay, thank you. So, what's written here, I wasn't trying to trick you or bait you into anything. I did this lesson with a group of high schoolers this past Sunday. They don't have the the grid that we do, right? And all of them were like, oh man, this is like, they need to get out from under their daddy. I hope they trust their dad. Like, they're calling him daddy. Like, that's really childish. It's really great. And I said, hey, turn to John 5.19. And I said, huh, these are the exact words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. I do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my Father doing. Jesus does nothing on His own. I mean, why is this surprising that this is Jesus? Saying this. I'm going to ask a ton of questions. This is our Bible study until we're done. So, God, it seems like He can do what He wants. Okay. It feels like He needs help. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Why else is it surprising to you that this would be a statement of Jesus? He's the King. Yeah, He's the King. He's God. Look to him. Yeah. So you're going to say, I look to my father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, he said, what's your name? Eric. Eric said, we went to Jesus, and to hear Jesus say, he looks to, some, to his father is kind of shaking for us. Yeah, any other thoughts? Why it might be shocking? Yes, sir. Sat in the front row, didn't I? That's uh, okay. You see my facial like expressions. Yeah, you were going to say something. Well, just the whole, like, what is the father eating? Like, look at all the human things he's doing. Is this even true? I mean, you know what I mean? Sorry, yeah. that's offensive to ask but you know what I mean? It's just like, sure. what's he talking about? Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of things that he does that father, you think is he doing? Yeah. Yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah, thanks for saying that, because it is... Here's the, here's the beauty of right of Hebrews one that we're we're seeing God and the heart of God when we're watching the person Jesus. I mean that's astounding uh, that we have a window into uh, who God is through His Son. All right, so yeah, there's there's this uh, strikingly. Weird, like against our grid of, against my grid of like, Jesus is kind of this superhero that has the cape on, that kind of flies above life. 
Uh, yeah, I get Hebrews. Yeah, right. He really struggled in his flesh and understands my weakness and was tempted in every way as I am. Jesus didn't have pornography. Like, really? Like, he really didn't relate. Like, does he really get my struggles and my weakness? All right, come on. Let's just be honest. We've all struggled and grappled with, I hope you have, grappled with those kind of questions. God's big enough for your kind of doubts and questions. Go to him with them. Talk to him about them. God, I don't get it. I have doubts. What are you doing? That's okay. He's a big, big God. He can handle it. But it's just, it's, it's really fascinating that we never really think of Jesus as actually being powerless. There's a powerlessness to Jesus. He does all these amazing miracles. And he does all these powerful things, but then there's like this childlike side to him that when he starts talking about his father or to his father, he becomes very childlike. And even the Lord's Prayer is very childlike that he teaches his disciples. It's it's astounding to think of him in that way. And and really, Jesus is displaying, this is a statement of faith. Have you ever thought about Jesus exercised faith? Like, not saving faith. Jesus didn't need saving faith. He was the saving faith. But he's modeling for us not just to say, hey, here's my example, but it's because who he was. This is what faith looks like, that I don't do anything on my own. And we're going to hit on this theme tomorrow when we talk about what does a prayerful youth ministry look like? What does it look like for you as a youth pastor to have a prayerful ministry? What does it look like for you to be a prayerful youth director? Um, We're going to talk about that. Uh, not because I've arrived, believe me. Um, so so there's, this, uh, there's this weakness, in a sense, that Jesus shows in regard to uh, himself. So let's, let's read these other comments. Let's, I'm going to pass out a few verses. John 6.38. Just somebody just say, I got it. I got it. Thank you. John 7.28. I got it. And John 8.28. And John seven eighteen. Great. All right. So let's read these other uh, comments that Jesus made. Start with John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Okay. Seven twenty eight. Yes. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Very good. John 8.28 Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught. In John 7.18 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Okay, so this, in other words, this I do nothing on my own, I only do what I see my Father doing. It's not just a one-time throwaway verse for Jesus that John recorded in the Gospels. This is actually the tone of Jesus' life. Are you, hear this statement. Jesus Christ is the most dependent person that has ever lived in the history of the world. He's the most dependent person that has ever lived. Man, what does that look like? Let me uh, let me see if I can draw this. I don't know. If, I'll just draw it up here. Because my apple pen is finicky sometimes. Um, just to there's part there's part of the beauty of this is that when we're watching watching Jesus, we're watching the fullness of humanity. We're watching. Humanity 2.0. But what we're seeing, I'm going to draw kind of a kind of a watermark here, if you will. Kind of like the iceberg illustration, like you see what's above the iceberg and you see what's below it. Well, here's here's kind of what's below, if we will. This is kind of the heart, and this would be the behavior, or kind of externally what we see. Okay? So down here at the heart of Jesus. We see this, I can do nothing on my own. So what's he doing? He's going down into the heart of his father. Somebody read, uh, I think it's, if I'm remembering this correctly, John 5, 30. Um, Justin, read the second half of that. Read that verse again and read the second half. The first part says, I can do nothing on my own. I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent That's not what I was looking for. <laughs> oh man, what is it? Can't remember. It might be the end of 17. I'm not going to be able to track it in my brain. But Jesus says, uh, at the end of one of those verses, I can't remember. Jesus says, because the Father loves me. So like at the heart of Jesus, right, we know in the triune eternal existence, this beautiful, loving relationship and this communion of love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's this beauty that's there, and Jesus hasn't forgotten it. You go back to John 17, and you read John 17, and his high priestly prayer, he's like on the precipice of death, and what's he longing for? to be back with his father. Again, he remembers that glory he had with the father before the world existed. So he's, there's this utter dependence. It creates in Jesus this dependence that he cannot do life on his own. Like this has become my family's mantra. Like I'm trying with every ounce of my being. This is... Like, I have an 18-year-old, a freshman in UTK. I have a 16-year-old in high school, a middle school girl, and an elementary school girl. 
Well, like we have the gamut covered. And I'm trying to help them understand we don't do anything on our own. Like that is, that's the way we do life. I want them to know that we fix our eyes on Jesus. We are like dependent children and we don't do anything on our own. And I have this verse written in places throughout our house. Just so they remember, the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity said, I do nothing on my own. If he's the second Adam, the perfect download, the one we look to to do life, is he telling us something as we watch a Godhead who's dependent in their love and their life we can speak of it, that mystery in that way. Right there, it's, it's unbelievable this fact that Jesus is this, shows this interdependence. And what do we see? We kind of see this kaleidoscope of love. A kaleidoscope of, of Jesus showing compassion, of Jesus providing space for faith to grow in his disciples, for, for Jesus to be honest for Jesus to do his emotions right. Like we see above the waterline all of this. And what's it flowing out of? It's all coming from this deep well that he knows he is loved by his Father. Right? There's a gospel sense here that Jesus remembers the love of his Father. And all that flows out of that is this glorious kaleidoscope of behavior and love. Imagine... Right? If we began to see and remember the Father's love. Right? It's the doctrine of adoption. They understand that kids begin to understand that they're an adopted son or daughter of the Most High King. Man, the Father's love is on them. You're, you're free to love. You're free to go. So, just to think about that, that utter dependence on the Father in there. Why is... Why is uh, Dependence, the guiding thing in Jesus' life. One of the guiding principles in Jesus' life. What do you think? I found it. John 5.20. It was in my notes. You want to read that, Justin? Yeah. The Father loves the Son. He shows him all that he himself is doing. The greater works Yeah, great. Yeah, the Father, Jesus just bathes in His Father's love. He's just utterly, I've got to have the Father showing me, right? We can talk more nuanced. What does He, what does he mean by the Father showing me? Like was there's this like film strip running in the back of Jesus' mind. When Jesus was a baby lying in the manger, was there an SD card downloaded to His brain? Where he just automatically knew all the scriptures, he just started like it, blah, 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 started babbling scripture out at two years old. Now, in the in the fullness of his humanity, at the same time, the mystery of being fully God, he studied the scriptures, he memorized the scriptures, he sought the Father's will. Could you imagine what it would like be like? To study the scriptures without sin, to taint your understanding, your ability to memorize it, 
I mean, Jesus was a genius. Right? He was God. He was the Word. But man, imagine what prayer, communion with the Father would be like. Imagine what dependence would look like if sin were not there. We start to get the picture, this beautiful picture of the fullness of His humanity. So to what extent was Jesus dependent? This will this will um, blow your socks off. To what, to what extent? Fully, like flesh that out. Give me some examples. Um, probably didn't know where a lot of his meals were coming from. Okay. Um, uh, relied on God more than his friends. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Y'all help. Think the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay. Right. I don't want him to go through this, but not. All right, let's keep digging. To what extent? See that this is beautiful because we're not getting into the person of Jesus. To what extent did Jesus depend on his father? Keep going, dig deeper. Yes? He didn't even try to do everything on his own. Like in Mark 1, when it comes down from being in uh, solitude, the disciples are like, oh man, like, we've got so much lined up for you to do. And he's like, no, we've got to. I've got to leave, we've got to move on, there's, there's other stuff to do. He knew where to like draw boundaries and like even if he didn't try and do all the work yeah. by himself. Yeah, good. He knew what he called Lazarus for 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 to trust the Father to do all Yeah, yeah, very good. Use your imaginations. He went into the wilderness and was tempted the spirit of life. Okay? Yeah? Think of Jesus as a person. Details. You have to figure things out. Um, One of those things I guess you figured out was that, oh, my mission is to die. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Yeah, that's mystery, right? At what point did Jesus know? Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm hearing. We don't know. We can speculate it's 12 or whatever reason it's temple. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, it's a yeah. rebellious teenager moment, right? <laughs> yeah. Where is he? Yeah. I'm in my father's house. Yeah. Of course. All right, come on. Like, to what extent was Jesus dependent? Yeah. I think in some ways he was dependent more than we could be because. He, was, he had to deny himself good things. Um, we yeah. have a hard time denying good things. You know, and people were falling. Um, for example, thinking as a as a young man growing up, seeing and knowing the full benefits of the promise that it's not good that man should be alone. Yeah. He had to give up the life of the family, which is a creation mandate. Yeah. For all of humanity. But yeah, the bigger picture of the Father's plan is that we totally dependent to give up the good things. Yeah, that's good. Not just the bad. Yeah. Good. Keep going. Keep wrestling. Use your imagination. Jesus is uh, walking dusty roads. He's in the middle of like life. He's fully human. He's got flesh. I can see here. 
watching. What's he dependent on? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, friendship in the truest sense. Like he was, I think someone else was sort of shut out, misunderstood. Like to really know someone that well, to really be a friend to someone. Like God was the only one that fully understood. He, he told us said that time and time again to his disciples. He was like, man, you guys don't get it. Like, and yeah, he calls them friends, but to really like feel that into Yeah, that's really good. Like thinking about the loneliness of Jesus in that. Yeah. Okay, so this was really like mind-altering, heart-altering for me. Turn to John 12. Does anybody have the NIV? Everybody's got the ESV these days. Anybody got the NIV? Come on. Yeah, I can cover it. Anybody got it? You got it? NIV, read 12. I just like the way the NIV puts it. Verse 49 and 50. Read aloud and proud, please. You got it? Oh, yeah, 49 and 50. Yes, chapter 12. For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who has sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that His command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Very good. I think the uh, maybe the message translation it says, uh, "For I do not speak of my own accord, but Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it." To what extent was Jesus dependent on His Father? We really don't think of Jesus in this way. What's that? What's that verse telling us? To what extent? It's kind of reading off cue cards. Yeah. Like every word that came from his mouth, Jesus literally took every thought captive. Literally. It seems that Jesus is saying, I didn't speak unless I first talked to my Father before the words came out of my mouth. And the message translates it, how I said it as well. Are are y'all starting to pick this up? Like, This is what it means to be fully alive and fully human, to watch the person of Jesus. Could you imagine your relational life if you took every thought captive, you began to take your union with Christ, and it moved you to imitate Christ, and you said, I'm not going to say these words unless I first talk to my Father. 
empty. Somebody react, react to that. Are y'all following me? Disagree, throw stuff at me, whatever. Thoughts? I think it's pretty convicting as somebody who's called to be a minister of the gospel. To know that even Jesus himself was in that sort of position of humility. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon. Y'all can probably help me with this quote. He said, as he stepped into the pulpit, said something like, um, Holy Spirit, may these be only your words uh, that I'll speak or something like that. I'm totally butchering. Sorry, Spurgeon. Yeah. I just think, like, if I, uh, if I pick up a book and at the end of every sentence was a footnote that said, like, see some other reference, like, Fine. What are you bringing to the table? Like, if every single one of your sentences is footnoted and like credited to somebody else, like, I wouldn't read that book. I wouldn't take it seriously. But it's like if Jesus had written a book, it'd be like footnote, like see God the Father. <laughs> That's After great. Every single sentence. I love that. Yeah, and how we how we long to say we have an original thought. Yeah. Right, our heart, the pride that just said, oh, I want to have an original thought here. And Jesus is like, I just pray every day and follow Father, is this what you want me to say? Is this how you want me to say? I mean, could you imagine, I mean, imagine being in His presence, the person of Jesus' presence, and, and seeing this lived out. It's phenomenal. Like, what we're starting to do is to see the beauty of this person who lived in utter dependence. Right? And what's the Holy Spirit inside of you doing? His job is to craft, mold, prune, shape you to look like Jesus. So as we as you think about that, to what would what would life look like for you this week on Sunday? Next week, just think of a shorter time frame, maybe just today, what would it look like if you did nothing on your own? That's pretty life-altering, isn't it? What would we have to do? What's one thing that we would all have to do? Pray a lot more. Pray a lot more. Maybe slow down. Yeah, before I say this to my wife, Jesus, <laughs> help me here. Before I give this counsel to this teenager, whatever it is. So let me ask you a few cultural questions. Uh, what does our culture say about dependence? Okay. We're the land of autonomy. Yes. The home of the free. Yes. To do what I want. Yes. Fill in the blank. Dependence is for the. Yeah. To tool to manipulate people. 
Say again. Say it's like it's tools to manipulate people. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. That's a good thought. Yeah, what else does culture say about dependence? It's optional, selective. Do, do it if it's the best thing for you, but if not, you do it. Yeah. Yeah, be you. Do your own thing. They kind of like know and understand it. Some way, but they don't want to force it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. In, in what ways is that? In what ways is our culture's view of of dependence, which is really independence, appealing? Any thoughts? In what ways is it appealing? There's no accountability. Yeah. No accountability. We do what we want when we want. I mean, that's pretty convenient living. I go at the pace I want. Right? It's like driving in traffic. Man, what if you live by that principle? (laughs) Crash pretty quickly. So, if... uh, Help me with this just just to fill in a a chart here. Um, We'll do it in the sunshine. So if this is our our culture's view of this is dependence and Jesus' view, I'll kind of fill in. Uh, I can't live without it. What would the culture say? Destroy the pantry argument. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Short Okay. Um, if Jesus says, I do what my father wants, what's the what's culture say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The same thing. What's the op- what's the opposite? Figure out what you want. Yeah. I do me. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's lots of right. Um, Jesus says, "My destiny in those verses we read is." Controlled by my father. What's the opposite of that? Captain of my ship. Yes. Yeah. So as we as we start um, thinking about this, what might be what might be some of the consequences that you guys are seeing? as our students live this, right? Because that's really what's happening, right? There's two stories going... That's four. There's two stories going on. There's two stories being told, two narratives being told in our world right now. All right? One is, I do me. 
The goal is I be the most authentic me I can be, my authentic self. Two is the story of Jesus, a story that's really rubs us the wrong way. It's a dying and rising story. Like, so if this is the view, what is, what's the result that you're seeing if students are living in culture's view of what it means to be dependent? Produces anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. Yeah, what else? Creature-creator distinction. I get to be the creator and one, and the other one I'm submitting to who I've been created to be. Yeah. Yeah, good. Good. Anybody else? I have a right to not feel bad about myself um, or be challenged. Yeah. What is a culture of independence creating in your students? Isolation. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? In a world that we're supposed to all be connected because we have these things, money, 100% of our day. You know, Apple did a thing the other day that said that people touch their iPhones. The average person touches their iPhone over 2,000 times a day. Just touches it. <laughs> Isolation in the midst of that. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, anything else? What else are you seeing? In your students, anxiety, isolation, autonomy, selfishness. Yeah. Busyness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me let's play with the, that's that's a great one. We I could go off on busyness. I'll try not to. That's like a soapbox. Um, a student. This kind of hits on it. So. This question, a student made the following comments to themselves. To themselves, what, what do you think is missing from these statements? See if this resonates with some of your students. Student said, if I don't get the top grades and score high on my ACT or SAT, I won't get into college, the college I want, or get the scholarship I need. What's missing from that statement? That's, a, that's an independent cultural view statement. What's missing? Dependence. Right? They're, they're missing dependence. What about this one? If I, don't, if I don't look a certain way or act a certain way, I won't get the boyfriend or girlfriend I want. What's missing from that? the same answer. Dependence. Like maybe I should talk to the father or not whether I should actually have a girlfriend or boyfriend. No, it's my decision. 
Number three, if I don't have a great Instagram or Insta stories, I won't look happy or successful to others. It's it's independence. It's do y'all see like I live in Chattanooga, like the Tennessee River flows through Chattanooga. During big rain events, it's moving pretty quickly. You wouldn't want to jump in it and try to swim against the current. Like this is the massive cultural current that our students live in. And it's pushing them, right? Even parents are saying, you need to grow up and get independent and get out of my house, right? It's part of, right? There's a truth to that. There's a truth to that. But the cultural uh, tide is so strong that to, I mean, when I... When I did this lesson with 12 high school students last week, I wish I could have like taken a picture of their face when they realized that Jesus was dependent. It was like shocking to them. Like this is the way we're supposed to do life? It is so opposite of the cultural tide. So here's the last one. If, if I don't go along with the things my friends are doing or saying, I won't fit in and won't have friends. Instead of, hey Jesus, I'm really struggling with friendships here and how to make friends and what I do to cultivate really good friendships. Right there's like... I'm talking about prayer on Thursday, but like it, this flows so much out of that. Like there's a there's a dependent life that Jesus lives. Um, so if we were to go back and draw this, like if I was to take this drawing and just shift it to a student, or maybe we should do ourselves. The heart is way too low. Uh, anyway, I'll put it right here. What's at the heart? Like some of the stuff we talked about. Self, ACT score, shame. Shame, fear. What are their idols? Friends. Yeah, good. Status. So, if this... Let me shift this up. Right? If this is here, and this is where they're going into, and this is the heart, what are we seeing up here? When something in my world crashes, when something crashes, I crash. Right? Anger, self-harm, anxiety. Yeah, you get it? Go get the picture. So, what would it look like if 
God were part of the student's thought process. Um, how would it change your life if you began to do life like Jesus and you learn from Him to be dependent? So, let's stop there. What is um, what's something you learned about the person of Jesus that maybe you didn't realize before? Any thoughts? Nothing? Nobody learned anything new about Jesus? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, he had every right to. Yeah, it's like, like if this, uh, you use an illustration of the river and the current, like, it's like we're all these overweight, asthmatic people like, trying to <laughs> swim against the current, and like the only guy who's fit enough to actually swim and beat the current is Jesus. So, like He's over on the riverbank, like, hey, I've got breakfast over here if any of y'all want to like get out of the river and like, Enjoy some, some peace and rest. Uh, uh, like he could have done it, but he didn't teach us not to do it. So. Yeah, that's great. It reminds me of Chikichi. Hmm. Dead fish, I'll with the flow, living fish, good fish. Hmm. That's how the people respect it. It's easy to get in the Yes, thank you. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, thanks for saying. You know, it reminds me, I've been married for 22 years. My wife's name is Rebecca. 22 years ago, I did not fall in love with the principle or the truth, the biblical concept of marriage. I just didn't. I fell in love with the person. I fell in love with Rebecca. And man, you know what's really cool? Is that 22 years later, I really love the principle and the concept and the truth of marriage and the thing that God has created. But I fell in love with the person first. And that's that's the gist of what I'm getting at. Y'all... Um, we got a few minutes for questions. Just general pushback. Like, um, give, me, give me whatever. I'm open to criticism and ridicule and all kinds of stuff.
I'm not about to push back a lot. Uh, that's not what I raised my hand for. Maybe there was like a little collective chuckle a minute ago. I don't know if this, this is why I chuckled, but was that with IGN, a lot of them practice a tremendous amount of dependence. Maybe it's when we're like, they're leaving home, hmm. right? It's like a lot of my students are not getting their driver's license, not leaving home. Kind of don't want to do anything or they want to do a lot of things, but channel it through, through their home, through their parents' life. And so how does that, supposing we agree with everything we're saying here, want to take that to students. Uh, how do we maybe apply that, articulate it in light of what Hygiene's particular like failures to to just mature into Christ-likeness? Yeah. Which we have our own, you know, as a high yeah. school, like I almost want to get out and be my own person and maybe more of a character I'm familiar with, independence, but their independence looks kind of like dependence sometimes. Yeah. It's not just being me. No, that's a really good point. Um, how yeah, do we have them here? Oh, just be dependent. They're like, great. Yeah, and I think you, I think you, somewhat answered your question. I, the way I would answer it, like pushing them towards, what does maturity in Christ look like? Like there's, there's a, there's a level of dependence. Yes, you need to have. You are dependent on your parents, but there's also this deeper level of, or not deeper level. It's just, it is life as a follower of Jesus that we're dependent. On the Father, and how are you displaying that in your life on a day-to-day basis? Like most of us, really struggle with prayer, including myself. Like that is autonomy. It says, "Sorry, I got it. I didn't make it today." Right, so it's pushing the envelope. I think in the midst of midst of that, towards hey, what is? What does dependence really look like in your life? And asking that question of them. I think on that some more. Any other just generally big concepts, person of Jesus, whole in our theology? Could, could you say that kind of like, um, like a true God-centered dependence is going to push your capacities, your God-given capacities and capabilities and vocation um, into even more of a person that you're meant to be. Almost into a more fully formed self. That's not independence, but that's true dependence that presses you in to the person that you've been created to be. Yeah. And so it's a better form of independence. It's not independence, it's, but it's a better form of person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Luke 2 tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom. I mean, just sit on that for a year, right? Um, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Like, Jesus learned obedience, Hebrews says, through what he suffered. Like, I don't understand that. Um, so there's an aspect to which this is the process uh, of learning dependence that even Jesus went through. Um, so I'm following my master. I'm following in his footsteps to do life like he did it. Um, I just find, guys, I'm like, I'm not like sugarcoating anything. I told you I've been a Christian for a long time, 48 years old. 
I've had more fun being a Christian in the last five years than I've ever had in my entire life. Because again, I'd like... I'm just not, like... I'm not doing life with gospel transactions anymore. I'm doing life with a person of Jesus. Like, anytime anybody asks me a question, like... My very first thought out of my mouth is, how would Jesus answer this? How would Jesus? How did Jesus live this? Right? It's like I don't. I mean, I know why WWJD went away because the church turns everything cheesy. Right? We had to have floor mats with WWJD, coffee mugs, bumper steer, whatever. Right? But I really love the principle of that. It makes me think about the person. Right, there's areas which it got screwed up, I agree. But, man, I need to be asking that question all the time. I'm just, I'm, I'm just confessing, I'm not smart enough for every encounter that comes in my life to remember the gospel transaction thing and figure out, like, how does that fit this situation? But if I just say, oh man, let me think about Jesus for a second. Golly, it's like I'm back in second grade. It's fun. Really fun. You know, I just start reading the scriptures differently. Like I've been reading for the past six months, I've just been reading through all the epistles, through Acts and the epistles, and just reading it just with one question on mind. How did their interaction with the most extraordinary human person of Jesus that ever lived, how did their interaction with him influence what they wrote and why they wrote it? And that's all I'm asking. And it's really cool. Alright, any, any other pushback questions? Y'all have been awesome. Yes? Y'all can stand up, stretch, whatever. No, you're good. Go ahead. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, time, time out. <laughs> it's a great book. 
Um, yeah, I, I will hit on this Thursday, but if you go to Mark chapter 1, Jesus has, like, y'all know how you have one of those ministry days where you go, I have no idea how I'm going to get everything done. Ministry, like, just the load of stuff on your plate, ministry-wise, and you're overwhelmed. Jesus has one of those days in Mark 1, and where the whole town shows up at the door, he heals everybody, like, and then he gets up very early in the morning, before the sun rises, it's still dark outside, Mark says, and what does he do? He goes up on the mountainside to pray. Like, it seems, and I stole this from Dan Stater, who said it seems in the scriptures and the gospels that the busier Jesus got, the more he prayed. And here's, we use a phrase to see Jesus that is, um, that Jesus did life low, slow, and hidden. And I believe that there's culturally getting involved in everything is cultivating this. Because if you don't, my son or daughter is not going to be well-rounded. They're not going to, right, whatever the dream is that we're all pushing our kids towards and our parents do. Um, I would just, I would just use the example But the pace of Jesus' life was slow. He dealt with interruptions all the time. I mean, he was, he was slow in the way he did things. I mean, think about it. He's on the way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. It seems very urgent. They're like sending messengers, like updating him, like, she's dying, like, come on. And he's passing through a city. And what's he do? Like, a lady touches the hem of his garment. And he stops. Like somebody, I felt the power grow out of me. Somebody touched him in my garment. And like, stops and spends time with this lady. On his way to Lazarus' tomb. Right, they're upset that he's late and he's already dead. But Jesus' pace, the reason that Jesus didn't go is because he talked to his father. Because we know this at the prayer of the tomb. Right? When he prays to the father, he says like, now this was so that you might receive the glory, and this—it's a right, it's a, a word, it's a real living picture of what's about to happen to Jesus. But it's it's this pace of life that Jesus does, or just goes, I'm not doing anything unless I talk to my father. And I think a fair question to ask parents is, have you talked to the father about this? i found just sometimes wording it a different way instead of saying, hey, have you prayed about this? Say, hey, have you talked to the Father, to your Heavenly Father about this? Just, I'd love to pray with you. Man, I'm telling you, like, yeah, you want to get your teeth kicked in as a youth pastor? Start confronting parents on their busyness. It's a hard one. But man, like, do we wonder why the counseling industry is just 
blowing smokestacks, right? Because the church isn't addressing these things. We've got to start being brave enough and trusting the Father and saying, man, maybe you need to slow down and cut some things back. 